Well, thank you, Lois, for uh, sharing that report with us earlier. And it's great to see Jeevan not only in the pictures, but back here again as well. And uh, praying for Shekinah as well in the ministry. Let's uh, spend some time together today in praying for some of the things that we have heard about, some of the ongoing needs and praising God for the ways that he has provided as well. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we thank you that you are not only the creator, you are the vision giver, you are the provider. Lord, today especially why we want to lift up before you, Lord, uh, the people of India. Lord, they are a people that are dearly loved by you. Lord, we thank you for the vision that you put into the hearts of missionaries long ago. Lord, to go and to share the good news of who you are and what you have done. And Lord, I thank you that just as they uh, sowed those seeds of the good news, Lord Jesus, which you gave us that mandate to do, Lord, some of those seeds fell among good soil, and they grew and they produced a harvest. And Lord, we thank you that that ministry and that message continues to go out Seeds continue to be sown, both of the good news, Lord, and also of, of ministering to people in their needs. Lord, we ask for your blessing upon the ministry of rags, upon leaders like Jeevan, and uh, Lord, for Shekinah, as she has taken the step of baptism and going public with her faith, Lord, we, we recognize there is wisdom needed on a daily basis. Lord, we pray that you would give that exactly when it is needed. Lord, we also recognize that the needs at times can seem absolutely overwhelming. And yet, Lord, we pray that you would continue to provide as well. And uh, Lord, when we think of, of coming out of brokenness, and hurt, and pain, and disappointment. And yet, God, you are the one who is also able to heal. I'm reminded of the story last week of the bitter water, and sometimes, Lord, people's experience has been bitter and hard. And yet, you said that you are the God who heals. You are the God who restores. And Lord, I pray, we pray together, Lord, that we would see your glory come, your healing power, that you, the God who provides, Lord, even in the wilderness places, Lord, that you would provide for your people, that they would bring you glory and honor, and that, Lord, others would come to know you as the God who saves. Amen. Well, this, uh, this week, I was thinking about pressure testing, and I'll say why in a moment, but I used to work in construction, and I, I remember, you know, at the building would get along to a certain stage, the plumbing, the gas lines, and others, and then it would be testing, pressure testing day. After they were installed, they needed to do it with water or with air to find out if, you know, if any joints were leaking, if everything was holding as it was supposed to, were there weak spots? Would the water line or gas line hold up to the pressure and the strain that it would need to perform on a regular basis so that it would be doing 
what the designers had designed it to do and not become a disaster instead. Well, of course, the buildings and pipelines aren't the only things that get pressure tested. People get pressure tested. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally. And uh, we will see some pressure testing in today's story of Exodus 16. And I invite you uh, to turn there. And as you're turning there, you're uh, just bringing up a map from the past. Uh, hopefully you recall, we are in a, a new stage in Israel's journey. They have come out of Egypt. And as they came out of Egypt, there was a kind of a Y in the road. There was the short road uh, that would go right directly to the promised land. And it says that God didn't take them on that one. No, they took them on the longer route. And uh, in order to grow and strengthen their faith and trust in him. Now they were no longer Pharaoh's people, but now they had become the people of God. And having been prisoners all their life, really they had no idea what was be involved in being and living as the people of God, as free people. It would be like a prisoner who has spent, you know, 20 years maybe of his life, and now suddenly, okay, you're free to go. Or maybe closer to home, you know, you've lived under mom and dad's roof all your life, and now it's like launching out on your own. Well, what Israel needs is a, a rite of passage to help them move from their former identity and way of life to a new identity and way of life. In many societies, there is a movement, this movement from being a child to an adult involves a process, a rite or certain rites of passage in which the former children are taken away from their homes, sometimes and from their camps, to a new unfamiliar place and space where they are taught, trained, and prepared to live as adults. At the end of the training period, they are, they are brought home and often participate in a, in a public ceremony or rite in which they are given a new identity with its privileges and its responsibilities. And it's helpful to think of Israel's time in the wilderness with God as their rite of passage, their training period. In the wilderness, they find themselves in a place where they have never been, with challenges they have never had to face, with choices they have never had to make. But they need to learn how to handle these if they are to be successful in taking their place as citizens in the kingdom of God. They will need a greater reliance than they have had in the face of new temptations, threats, and challenges. Now, in the wilderness, Israel is called to trust their new king each day for their daily bread, water, and protection. And this absolute trust in God to provide for all of their needs, uh, clearly, as we will see, it does not come easily to them given the amount of grumbling and complaining that will be heard from them time and time and time again, like we find in today's story. Let's read Exodus chapter 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, 
Oh, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it, what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell, so Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they grabbed, gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord has com commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. 
The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was like white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. An omer is about one-tenth of an ephah, uh, or about two liters. Well, chapter 16, it begins with a time marker, which basically says that it's been one month after they left Egypt. Enough time for the newness of the freedom to wear off a little and the harshness of the wilderness life to set in. You know, it's kind of like when I left home, you know, it was just the great freedom and then it's like, oh, I got to wash my own clothes, cook my own meals, do my own shopping, pay my own bills, you know. Well, Israelites, the Israelites faced several challenges since they left Egypt. They had been pursued and trapped by their enemies by the Red Sea. They had, uh, in the previous chapter, chapter they had come along, they had to deal with a lack of water in the desert, and now they have a lack of food. I wonder, how will they respond to this challenge? Will they remember how the God provided for them the protection that they needed in the past, or how he was able to turn the bitter water into drinkable water? No, that's not what they do, do they? The whole community grumbled. They complained against Moses and Aaron. That word grumbled or complained in, in Hebrew, it describes hostile complaining, strong words of discontent, angry rejection, or verbal attacks of dissatisfied people. It's murmuring some translations had because they're kind of mumbling under their breath. They are so mad and angry against Moses and Aaron. And they make a horrendous claim in verse 3. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Oh, remember the good old days we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted? Well, kind of a very distorted and selective memory, isn't it? I don't think they were sitting around pots of meat. Uh, in fact, very most people did not in that day, except if they were the king. They think they were better off in Egypt. God has just made things worse. Even that language is cynical. The language brought us out. That is the language of deliverance, of salvation. And they are twisting the basic confession of salvation, saying that God's salvation has been nothing but starvation. God doesn't care. And neither, Moses and Aaron, do you, or you wouldn't have brought us out here to die. Sounds like, well, teenagers at their worst moments. Or spouses, maybe, or whatever. But uh, complaining, it distorts the past doesn't it? 
And it also exaggerates the hopelessness of the present. And it holds out absolutely no hope for the future. That's distortion. Now, it is similar to lament or complaint in, in that we see in the Psalms in that it voices one's feelings, but it is different because it is not rooted in faith but in unbelief. In biblical lament, one ultimately believes in God, and that's why this disconnect between these present difficult circumstances and what God can provide, that's what makes it difficult, and it drives the people in the Psalms to God and to seek God. But here it's like, I'm done with you. In grumbling, one does not believe that God even cares, and they either write him off, or they take it to a, a third party, or they try to manipulate him. You know, if you really loved me, you'd, you know, let such, let me do like her parents do. We've heard that kind of thing. Or if you really cared about me, God, you wouldn't let this happen. If you were God, how would you respond to these whiners and complainers? Well, what is most striking in the scene that follows is God's response to the people's whining. He says, I will send rain down bread from heaven for you. Wow, mercy, manna and mercy. God will show them his grace and his glory by feeding them. He says, meat in the evening and bread or food that they can eat in the morning. Now they will have to go out and catch and cook the quail and gather all the manna, but it will be delivered to where they are, available to one and all. The only rule is that they follow the provider's basic instructions. Daily and weekly rhythm is set here, a schedule. Double on the sixth day so that you can keep the Sabbath and enjoy a day of rest. And basically, don't be greedy, don't hoard, count on it one day at a time. As commentator Waldemar Jansen notes, Israel has looked back and fantasized about Egypt as a land of plenty, bordering on debauchery, you know, excessiveness. In contrast, God's provision is accompanied by a test of moderation. They shall gather each day enough for that day. This requirement of self-limitation is a test of obedience, a test of Israel's faith or tr of trust in God's provision. This self-limitation against greed must not be seen as the restriction of a stingy God. For we only need to look ahead to the Sabbath and how God will double the amount gathered on the sixth day so that Israel can experience a gift they never had in Egypt a weekly day of rest. Some of us complain that the holidays don't come soon enough, but imagine all of their lives never a day off, treated like work units. And God tests his people for their benefit, not for his. It's through passing and failing these tests of faith that God's people will learn the nature of faith and obedience that will be required of them ultimately to enter into and to remain living in the promised land. It is for their benefit and the benefit of others, for the whole community. 
Indeed, God's goal for them is that in their maturity, they will be a light to the nations, a missionary people. God uses our wilderness experiences to prepare and equip us for life and ministry. He uses them to teach us that he is able to care for us even in the most challenging circumstances and settings. God has been doing that. If they knew the stories of Abraham and Sarah, you know, in the midst of barrenness, the story of Isaac, same challenges along the way, living in the midst of a, of a people where they feel powerless, Jacob, Joseph, spending those years in prison, all of them have wilderness experiences, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And yet, it is interesting, in, in the history of the Bible, there will be two dominant memories of the wilderness. One will be, it was the worst of times, okay? And there will be a lot of grumbling and complaining. But there's a second memory as well. It was the best of times. It was the best of times. Deuteronomy 29 uh, verse 5 captures that moment. During the 40 days that I led you through the wilderness, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread uh, and drank no wine or other fermented dis drink. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. It was a place where we lacked nothing. One of the Psalms will say, in the wilderness, we were eating the bread of heaven. <laughs> we were getting the food from God's very table that he eats from. And God, he has shown that he can provide by taking the bitterness out of the water. And I think God was wanting to redeem the bitterness of all of those years in Egypt. So reading uh, recently, one writer noted that uh, Jacob was... Uh, had been separated from his son Joseph when Joseph was 17 years old. Uh, and then he was separated for 17 years. And then, if you do the math, when Jacob moved back, to see, when he saw his son, and then he moved to Egypt to live there during the famine, it was another 17 years. And the writer noted, hmm, I think God was restoring those 17 years that he had missed out taking the bitterness out of that. And I think God is doing, can do that as well. He's showing them. And he's going to show them what he can do in a, in a place where they are just not having enough bread. He will say in verse 12, at twilight you will eat meat. In this, in our culture, meat, we have meat regularly. In that culture for poor people, that was a very rare thing indeed. And they are going to go to having it literally from God every day. God will provide. Well, um, yeah, we'll skip the scene three in verses 13 to 30. We see that this is put into motion. God is doing this provision and training. And everyone had enough. But did you notice what some of them did? Look at verse 20. Verse 20 they, uh, they paid no attention, and they decided, no, we'll be more secure if we keep some of this manna, this extra for tomorrow. They tried to make their existence more secure. They tried to stockpile it rather than to trust that God would give them tomorrow's bread tomorrow, just as he promised. 
They thought that they would be more secure if they could go to bed looking at a full jar of manna for tomorrow's meal. Well, they tried that, and those who woke up, opened the pot up, and it had maggots in it. Boy, that would certainly ruin your appetite, wouldn't it? You wouldn't forget that experience. But there were also times, in fact, one day a week, when they were to gather more and save to be savers enough for one more day. Enough for the next week? No, for the next day, the Sabbath. And when it, God wanted them to do that, notice in verse 24 that the leftovers on those days were just as good as the day before. They did not stink or get maggots in them. God was teaching them the difference between saving, I think, and hoarding. Saving, saving is saving for a specific need or goal. In this case, you will need one extra day. Hoarding is seeking to try to increase our security. Jesus, I'm reminded of Jesus' parable of the rich fool. You know, his barns were full, so he thought, I've got enough. No, he didn't. He said, I must need more. I'm going to build bigger barns and more. And then he ends up dying. And uh, Jesus you know, uses as a lesson of, of foolishness of hoarding. We live in a day and culture when, with a more is better mindset. Don't we? More must be better. Must be. More is always better. It's an obsession in our culture. What we really need is what Paul talked about, the gift of contentment. The gift of contentment. Ironically, Paul in his letter to the Philippians, he calls it, he calls contentment great gain. That's great gain. In fact, in Philippians 4, verses 11, he will say, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. That was the lesson Paul had learned in his wilderness circumstances. And it is what God is wanting to teach his people. You see, the benefits of God-reliance rather than self-reliance. And that can also be seen what is taking place on the Sabbath. When the people were finally given a whole day off in the week, what did some of them do? <laughs> they went to work. The workaholics, they couldn't stand it. They couldn't stand not uh, checking their emails and their phone messages and finishing up their assignments even one day of the week. Some things never seem to change, do they? Manna required them to trust God to provide what they needed each and every month. No, each and every day. And Jesus will apply this, reapply this principle in the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 6. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about what, or what you will drink. And he will go on to say, you know, each day has enough, you know, trouble of its own. He's teaching them, one, don't borrow tomorrow's troubles. God won't give you grace today for tomorrow's troubles. For today's troubles or challenges, he will give you strength and what you need. 
And tomorrow you'll have to count on God providing what you need. And if you are in a situation that is 10 times more challenging tomorrow, you will discover that God can provide you 10 times more courage or energy or what you need to face that particular challenge. Now, this is a hard lesson. It's a hard lesson for the Israelites to learn, but it's one that is foundational and fundamental to experiencing true contentment and worry-free living. You know, we are prone to putting our trust in our own efforts, in our savings, in our abilities, when God wants us to learn to look to him as the source and supplier of everything. There's been many times in my life, but I remember especially during a season of unemployment that God used this. He took me back to this story, and he's like, I am your provider. I have been providing for you through a paycheck, but it was never the paycheck that was the source of provision. And you seem to have gotten that a little confused. I'm going to provide for you continually. It's just going to be in different ways. So keep your eyes open for it. I was just thinking about that this week. I can remember one day, I had a particularly difficult meeting with someone, and I came back so discouraged, I thought, I'm a failure. And it was that day, I was doing some construction work, and the guy that I was working with, did he, unexpected, and I told him, you know, how my day had gone, and he gave me a word of encouragement. It was manna. It was the manna I needed exactly that day when I needed it. And it was just one of those ways that God was teaching me, I'm your provider. You don't even know what you're going to need the next day, but I do. Well, and this lesson in whining and dining was so important that God makes a permanent reminder. He told Moses, who, I don't know if you noticed, he passed it on, he said, he tells Aaron, you do it, uh, to put an omer about two liters of the manna into a jar as a constant reminder of it. It was to be a history lesson on God's ability to provide and of the faithful living that they were to make sure that they also passed on to future generations. I loved what uh, Lois said about the testimonies, you know, written and put on the wall. Those are permanent reminders. I thought, I, th I like that idea. We get a lot of people coming through our building here during the midst of the week, lots of different user groups. It would be great to have some testimonies up on the, up on the wall or on the board. Some people do that in their own home. They have, uh, um, we have friends who have put a, a trunk in their, in their entrance. It's an old trunk, and you ask them about it. Well, that's how their grandparents came over. That's all, their, all that they had was in that one trunk when they came as refugees, reminders. Well, three less, or four lessons that I want, well, or one long lesson. The one lesson, the main one, is that God provides God provides. How do you, how do we know that God is a provider? By personal experience. It'd be a great exercise, I hope you do it, this, uh, this week, maybe even today after the service, to turn and share, what's my story? What a story do I have, how I know that God provides? Maybe he's provided the words that I needed in a situation Maybe he's provided a place to stay. Maybe a vehicle, a home, a job, 
encouragement. And God provides enough. Enough. I remember going through a a difficult season in my life, emotionally, a pit of depression. And I remember singing, uh, Your Grace is Enough. We were singing that song, but inside I was thinking, Oh God, I know I shouldn't say this, but I don't think your grace doesn't feel like it's enough. It doesn't feel like it's enough. I feel like I'm drowning. And I sense God saying, Then ask for more. Did I say there was limits? Ask for more. And somebody passed on the words, without knowing, passed on words of a, of a hymn, he giveth more grace. He giveth more grace as the burdens grow greater. He, he sendeth more strength as the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. I lived with that song. That was a gift. God provides enough. God provides enough for our needs. Not for our greed, but for our needs. Enough when we need it, through a variety of means. Just one other brief story. When I was young, uh, you know, I just poured energy into into ministry, into work. Um, It was hard to take a, a day off. Just, and I seemed to have the energy for that. And then I hit a wall and I just had over, totally overextended myself. And in the recovery process, I thought the image came to me of, of camels. You know, there's a two humped camel able to go long distances, they store up. And I thought, God, I want you to restore me to that two humped camel who will have the energy to do everything I did before. And then as I was going along, I realized I don't think God's like, no. And I was thinking, how about a one-humped camel, you know? It's like, at least still do a lot. And then we kind of settled out at half-humped camel. You're going to need to have more breaks along the way. This is now a limiter in your life so that you do not do what you did before. So that you learn to rely on me every day, every week, every month. God provides enough for our needs. And finally, God provides enough for our needs and for others' needs. What the rich man in Jesus' parable should have done when his barns were full was not build more barns. He should have been looking around. Who doesn't have anything in their barn? We need to resist the more is better mentality of our culture by looking. We need to live more simply so that others can simply live. God had the well-being of the whole community in mind, not just some in it, and so should we. One of the things that uh, Elaine and I do a number of, a few years ago, uh, Mennonite Central Committee had a program called Share Your Table. They did it during Thanksgiving, and they said, it's wonderful to sit down and thank God for, you know, the blessings of this year, but why don't you make a monthly contribution and share that table with others in the world who don't have it? It's like for $7 a month, you can make sure that somebody else is getting a meal. And, and we bumped it up beyond that. But, and each month we get a story from somebody that, that those meals are helping. And then they share a recipe 
from around the world, wherever they are, with that as well. It's just one way of creating kind of a, a regular reminder that God is, provides not only for our needs, but also for the needs of others. I want to invite the worship team to come up, and as they're coming, let's pray. Oh Lord, you give real-life parables fact, they're not just parables, they're stories of experiences where we come up against in life those times where we do not have the resources within us or the abilities or the wisdom or the courage that we need. And God, you do this because you know that we're not supposed to be self-reliant, we're supposed to be God-reliant. We're supposed to learn that though we are limited, you are not. Though we are limited in wisdom and energy and insight, you are unlimited. And the most blessed way to live is not in independence, but in greater dependence on you and on interdependence with your people. Lord, teach and train us in this, for this is the best way to live. Amen. Amen. Amen to that. Thank you, Ariel and worship team for leading us this morning. Perhaps you would like prayer. Perhaps you are at the place where the Israelites were when they didn't have food or they were at a great need and you would like prayer. Um, Lisa, Stephen, and uh, Lois Hammond will be available to pray with you up at the, my left, your right at the front. I encourage you to take advantage of that. Or perhaps you have a, a praise the Lord story of how God has provided. I encourage you, share that. You know, do you have a, do you have a God provided story? You know, you can ask that or you say, or you can share a story that you have. And I want to send you out with the uh, words of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. To him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. That's a lot. According to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.